Let's look at the background of the Gospel of John before we jump into it. And uh, those of you who've taken classes in books before from me know that what we do is we start at verse 1 and chapter 1 and we end up with whatever verse the book ends up with. And uh, feel free to stop and take any rabbit trails along the way that you think would be helpful to you. This is your class, not mine. And as long as we learn together, that's all that matters. So. The Gospel of John itself is interesting in that um, you got four Gospels basically in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or as some say Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. I guess that was an answer to some time poll named the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. Um, it's one of the four Gospels, but John is unique in that it really covers a lot of material the other Gospels don't even talk about. In fact, 90% of the Gospel of John is found in no other New Testament Gospel. It's almost like, I think it's 92% actually, is not in the other Gospels. So it's a very different Gospel. The other Gospels are called synoptics because they all follow the same basic um, historical pattern, you know, starting with the birth of Christ and working its way through to the crucifixion. Um, John skips a lot of that. He he basically dives right into the beginning of Jesus' ministry, skipping the whole childhood, you know, the, the birth narrative and all of that. And uh, really, John, the, bu the bulk of John um, centers on just a couple of weeks of Christ's life. The bulk of the book is only a few weeks. In fact, when you start from chapter 12 all the way through 22, you're basically at the last week of Christ's life. So it really focuses in um, on a... On a part of his life that the other Gospels um, do not. And um, from very early on, John was accepted as the author of this book. You go back in church history and you find quotes from many of the early church fathers, some back to the early parts of the first century. You know, like that's like the 101s, 102s, um, basically saying that this was written by John. There was really very little doubt that John, the, um, the apostle, wrote this book. Uh, Irenaeus quotes it quotes from John extensively. Irenaeus, of course, was John's disciple. Um, Polycarp was one of, was there as well. Um, the Miratorian Canon um, says John, one of the disciples, wrote a fourth book. John was a common name in those days. So it's, you know, one of the discussions that in a couple minutes we'll talk about is, well, which John is it? And again. Time and time again, talk about John the disciple, John one of the disciples. So we know which John it is. It's John the disciple. And there's only one disciple named John, so we can pretty much identify who it is. Um, Clement of Alexandria quoted Eusebius by Eusebius. Eusebius was a um, first century historian. And he wrote down a lot of the, he's like from the second century, I think it was. And uh, he wrote down a lot of um, the background of a lot of the New Testament books. He was basically a historian. And he basically says that this was written by John. In fact, to quote, um, he quoted Papias, which is an early church father. And he said, but I shall not hesitate also to put down for you, along with my interpretation, whatsoever things I have at any time learned carefully from the elders and carefully remembered guaranteeing their truth. For I do not, like the multitude, take pleasure in those that speak much, but in those that teach the truth, not in those that relate strange commandments, 
but in those that deliver the commandments given by the Lord to faith and springing from the truth itself. If then anyone came who had been a follower of the elders, I question him in regard to, the, regard to the words of the elders, what Andrew or what Peter said, or what was said by Philip or by Thomas or by James or by John or by Matthew or by any other disciples of the Lord, and what things Ariston and the presbyter John, the disciple of the Lord, say. For I do not think that which was gotten from the books would profit me as much as what came from the living and abiding voice. He's talking about John, and yes, there he called John the presbyter. Now immediately all the liberals start, their eyes brighten up because now they can say, oh, well, wait a minute. Um, there's this John the presbyter, John the elder that wrote the book, not John the disciple that wrote the book. All right, But you need to go back and ask yourself, what is a presbyter or an elder? What was an elder in those days? He was a church leader. What was John? He was a church leader. Um, in fact, John was an elder at the church at Ephesus, and from that spot in Ephesus, he ministered to many of the churches, the churches in Asia Minor that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. Those were all within walking distance of where John ministered. Um, he knew these churches, and he was an elder in the church. Um, so the whole idea of John the Presbyter being some different John than John the Disciple, that's just somebody trying to get a PhD out of the deal. Um, it's probably most likely, almost certain, that John the Elder is our Apostle John. And also, the, you know, again, when you look at the book, whoever wrote it walked with Jesus. I mean, this is, a lot of this is written from the first person. It's, this is not written from somebody who wasn't there. This is, this is written from the perspective of someone who was there, who saw these things. Um, and so we pretty much identify the author as being John the disciple. Um, when John speaks of himself, often he speaks of himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Jesus loved. Yeah. Why does he do that third person? Um, I think it's the same. I think there's this, it's the same reason that Jude doesn't say, "Hi, I'm the half brother of Jesus. Listen to me," or James says, "Hi, I'm the half brother of Jesus. You need to really listen to me." I think there's a humility there, and um, you know that that's really the sign of true greatness is humility. You know, they're not. He's not out trying to flash his his uh, credentials as the disciple of. of Christ, or, hi, I'm the one that Christ loved the most, you know, um, I'm just one of them that Jesus loved. And, of course, John is the, the, the writer of love, love. Yeah. you know, that, you, re you read it not only here, but in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation, all of those books have a common theme, you know, especially the epistles there, um, of, of love, and John never got over the love of God. And he saw himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And probably, um, emotionally, John was closer to Christ than any of the other disciples. I mean, Peter was close, but he was the, you know, the big mouth. He's the one always talking. Um, John was the one that was always there. You know, when all the other disciples abandoned Christ, John's the one who went with him into the judgment hall and the, and the crucifixion week. He actually was with Christ. And when Christ died, who did he give his mother to? John. So John was probably the closest. And that's why he references himself. Is that A lot of the authors, um, 
don't, don't, um, you know, scripture, don't try to identify themselves or make themselves out uh, or draw attention to themselves. They, they really deflect it away from themselves. Matthew deflects it away from himself. Um, John deflects it away from himself. Um, you know, Jude and James, the half-brothers of Christ, deflect it away from themselves. You know, they're not trying to, to um, play off of their relationship with Christ to give them some kind of prominence or, or voice to be heard, unlike what you see on TV nowadays. You know, it's just different. Cousin? Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. But you're right, he was. So he was John the Baptist's cousin too? Uh, yeah, he would be related. Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, internally, we know that whoever wrote this book was a Jew. He knew all the Jewish customs very intimately. He was from Palestine because he talks a lot about the geography. This is not written by someone who was outside of Palestine right looking in. This is somebody who knew the terrain and the, the area and, and remembered what it was like. Um, and he was contemporary of these events. I mean, he speaks of them in great detail as one who was there. You know, how would you get the information about being in the upper room if you weren't in the upper room? You know, whoever wrote this had to be there in the upper room. And it doesn't make sense that John the Presbyter, some other guy from Ephesus, would have written this account of the upper room and he not actually been there. Um, so this was somebody who was there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost certain that who wrote this was John, the disciple of Christ. Um, what do we know about this John? Well, he's one of five Johns mentioned in the Gospel. Gospels. Um, the other ones are John the Baptist. We know about him. Um, John the father of Peter. Um, there's John Mark, who's known as Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And uh, there's another John who's part of the Sanhedrin. So we, these are the five Johns that we know of. Um, and his father was known as Zebedee. His mother was Salome. Um, and Salome was a sister to Mary. Salome and Mary were sisters. And how do you know that? Well, Matthew 28:56 says there's three significant women who witnessed the crucifixion. It lists them there. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Jebedee's children, James and John. So you got Mary, Mary, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Okay? They were there. Then Mark 15:40 says these women were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, um, and Salome. So Salome is the mother of Zebedee's children. And then John 19 says these women were Mary Magdalene, the wife of Cleopas, which would eliminate Salome and his mother's sister, Christ's mother's sister, Salome. So you put all three of those together, and if you're a genealogist, it's just really easy. If you're not, you got to think about it. Um, John 19.25, Mark 15.40, and Matthew 28.56. So you compare all three of those, all right, 
you come up with Salome, the mother of Zebedee's children, the sister of Mary. So John and James were cousin, which would explain, remember when James and John sent their mom to ask about sitting on the right and the left? How'd the other disciples take that? Why? Yeah, they, they didn't have anybody to go do it for them. It wasn't like they were indignant that they would actually ask such an audacious kind of question, but they didn't have an in because Salome was Christ's aunt. You know? So, you know, James and John got mom to try and go get them in good with cousin Jesus, and that got the disciples all riled up because they didn't have the same connection. Um, we know that John was a fisherman by trade, right? He and James were fishermen before they became disciples. We know that from Matthew 4.21 and Mark 1.19. By the way, these notes are out on my website, and I'll give you the address later. You can go grab them and print them off yourself. How many sisters did Mary have? Well, I don't know. I mean, well, we know he had Salome and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a cousin, wasn't she? Right. Also, John the Baptist was a second Second cousin. Elizabeth was, a, Elizabeth was a cousin. Yeah, Elizabeth was a cousin, not a sister. We know of Salome, but I don't know of any others offhand. Yeah, just recorded that one. Um, Christ nicknamed them Boanerge, Sons of Thunder. Where did he get that name? Well, I remember when they came out of that city and they said, well, let's call down fire from heaven and burn them all up. Christ said, whoa, hold it, slow down, wait. I mean, they were pretty zealous guys. I mean, they were, which is sort of interesting when you think of John the Gospel, of, you know, the, the disciple of love being the one who's ready to call down fire from heaven and burn up somebody who, you know, doesn't receive them well. So he must have come around, I guess, in his time. Uh, both went to their mother to ask Christ to name them the places of honor. We talked about that. Um, John was one of the three disciples in the inner circle. He had three disciples in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew was in the inner four. And they're always seen together. Whenever you see the list of disciples in the Gospels, um, those four names always appear at the head of the list. And then the second four names always appear together, and then the final four names always appear together. And of the four that are closest to Christ, the three inner circle ones were James, John, and Peter, um, they were ones that went to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, James, John, and Peter were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, John followed Christ into the high priest's palace and to the crucifixion, something the other disciples didn't do. Remember, he, he went in to the place there. Um, and, of course, at the, at the cross, Christ asked John to care for his mother. That fly's just buzzing around, isn't it? It's sort of annoying. Um, after Pentecost, he and Peter traveled together. You see them in the first 11 chapters of Acts, Peter and John in the temple. Um, before Paul took over, and you know, the, 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 the limelight, so to speak, is Peter and John. Um, tradition tells us, and by tradition what we mean is the early church history that, that we've got from Eusebius and others, that uh, he spent his last years at Ephesus. John lived to a pretty old age, and he lived in Ephesus, 
in the reign of Domitian, which was the early 90s, he was banished to Patmos. But then when Nerva took over around AD 95, I think it was, he was allowed to return to Ephesus where he died shortly around you know, 100 AD, somewhere around in there. Um, and it was on the Isle of Patmos, of course, that he wrote the Revelation. Okay. Um, when was it written? When was the Gospel written? Well, tradition tells us John wrote the Gospel in, in response to the need for a spiritual Gospel. In other words, he wanted to present a side of Christ that the other three Gospels did not. So if that was the case, what, what, what it implies then is that the other three Gospels were written before John. So when did Luke write Luke? 62. Somewhere around 60, 62, somewhere around in there. So it had been written after that at some point. Well, some place it there, some place it later, like 70 or 80 AD. Um, Irenaeus says that it was written from Ephesus. If that was the case, then it would be towards the end of John's life. Um, we don't really know, but probably the date's somewhere around 85 to 90, give or take a couple of years, is probably pretty close to when it was written. Um, and why was it written? Well, it was written John 20, 30 through 31, which is the key verse. These things I've written that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, this was written. This was written to display Christ as deity. Each of the Gospels have a different view of Christ. They have a different look at him. Matthew sees him as the king, right? The king of the Jews. Shows his royal lineage um, and his right to be the king. So Matthew is really focused on Christ's kingship. And then you go over to Mark, and Mark portrays Christ as the servant. You know, the key verse of Mark, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And then you go over to the Gospel of Luke, which presents Christ as fully human, the humanity of Christ. Uh, son of the Son of Man was a common term used there. And then you go to John, which portrays Christ as the Son of God. And all three, all, all four Gospels, although there are some common elements in all four of them, each one of them portrays Christ from a different perspective. And together they give us a full understanding a fuller understanding of who he is. Because even as John says, you know, if, if you filled all the books of the world, they wouldn't be enough to, to tell you everything he did. Um, all the books of the world wouldn't contain it. Um, and it was really written to supplement, and I think John really did this on purpose, to supplement the other Gospels. He did not try to repeat what was already known, all right, in the other Gospels. So he really filled in a lot of details that are omitted from the other Gospels, which explains why 92% of it is different than the other Gospels. Um, the key verse of John is John 20, 30 through 31. That's the key verse. And uh, John omits the boyhood and, and uh, birth narrative. Why? Why do you think he did that? Son of, God. Son of God didn't have a beginning, so why do you, how do you talk about a birth? Yeah, there's no need. Why does Mark omit it? Because the servant, uh, his lineage is unimportant. It's irrelevant. 
his lineage is irrelevant. But Luke portrays him back to, you know, portrays the, the lineage, and so does Matthew, you know. And Matthew focuses in on his royal line, whereas Luke focuses on his descendancy from Adam, you know, as, as fully human. All right. But you're right. I mean, he's deity. You don't have a beginning as deity. There's no birth narrative ne necessary. Um, interestingly, it's the only gospel which, which, which reports the early Judean ministry. In fact, if you look at your book here, it splits it up like that. Um, basically, what you have, when, when you look at the life of Christ, you want to outline the life of Christ. Um, you outline it by, you know, where he where he basically um, ministered, all right? And what you have is you have the, uh, on page 15 here, there's a, a good little, little prologue kind of thing here that gives you Jesus' public ministry, the beginning. Um, a couple of, I'll get back to that. Remind me to talk about the, beginning of Christ's public ministry, the date. But basically what you have is you have Christ who ministered in Judea. First of all, where did Christ mainly minister? The bulk of the ministry took place where? No. Galilee. Yeah. Why is that? Why do you think most of his ministry took place in Galilee? Okay, down here is Judea. Then you have Samaria, then you have Galilee, and over here is Perea. Okay, and then up here is Tyre and Sidon. Okay, when you look at Christ's life, the life of Christ, John records the early Judean ministry that the other Gospels don't even hardly talk about. Okay, and then Christ spent his time in Galilee for the most part. And he would come down to Judea to go to the Passover, and then he'd go back up to Galilee and do more ministry. And Luke, in the central section of Luke, records Christ's Perean ministry, which was across the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River here. He records Christ's Perean ministry. All right? But basically, Christ stayed out of Judea. Why do you think he did that? Yeah, I mean, that's the last place you want to be if you're telling you're the Messiah because that's where all the religious muckety-mucks are and that's where the conflict's going to culminate. So, you know, he stayed away from here to not precipitate really an early crucifixion almost. Um, it's not that he ignored that, but, but the bulk of his time was spent in the area of Galilee ministry up there and he would occasionally go down to Judea again for the Passover and things like that, but he spent most of his time up in Galilee. All right, um, and John um, really focuses in on Christ's early Judean ministry, which is something the other Gospels don't even talk about at all. I was thinking in my MacArthur Study Bible. If, if those of you have the authorized MacArthur Study Bible, there's probably a little. Um, discussion of the of the ministry of Christ showing where he was um, at each time but um 
Now, one of the one of the difficulties, um, and one of the things I wanted to bring up here, is uh, when did Christ begin his ministry? That's one of the big questions. When did he start his ministry? Um, and you have some some sort of dates that you can you can um, throw out as to the possibilities of of when he started his ministry. Um, some some call it you basically have the early date and the later date. Okay? You have the early date and the later date. And uh the early date would be A D twenty six. Somewhere around A D twenty six. Twenty seven is when he started. Okay? And the later date would be more around A D thirty, okay, when he started. Alright? And if you're interested in these kind of date kinds of things, you can research this and do a paper on it or whatever. But a lot of people get the early date here by the statement of John. He was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Well, when was Christ born? 4 B.C. Yeah, somewhere around 4. Probably more like 5 B.C. How do we know that? Well, Herod died during the, an eclipse of the moon. The only eclipse of the moon in that area of the world at that time was in 4 B.C. He died in the spring of the year when the moon eclipse was. So we know when Herod died. Herod was still alive when he slaughtered the innocents, right? And remember he inquired to find out how, when the star appeared and he killed all the kids two and under, which would shove it back to about A.D. 6, A.D. 5. So Christ was probably born somewhere around AD, or B.C., excuse me, 6 to 5 B.C., somewhere around in there is when Christ was most likely born. All right? And then, if, taking in John 1:19, he was about 30 um, years old when he began his public ministry. Would put it, you do the math, around A.D. 26. There's no A.D. zero. It goes from B.C. 1 to 1 A.D. Right? There's no year zero. So, if you do the math, it's A.D. 26 when he began his public ministry. Now. Um, Luke says Christ began his public ministry in the 14th year of the reign of Tiberius. Okay? Tiberius began his reign in AD, I think, 15, which would make it AD 29, according to Luke, when he began his public ministry. So when did he begin his public ministry? Was it AD 26? Was it AD 29? Who cares? All right. I would probably lean towards the AD 29 date. And the only reason I would do that is because Luke gives you a date. And Luke was the historian, right? He's trying to write an orderly history. So he's trying to be precise. And John only says he was about 30 years old. Well, what does that mean, you're about 30 years old? You know, does that mean you're 30? Does it mean you're 31, 32? 33 would have... Christ could have began his public ministry at age 33, which would fit right in with the Gospel of Luke. So there's just different chronologies there. But Christ began his public ministry somewhere in the late 20s. Somewhere, somewhere around there, late 20s A.D. is when he began his public ministry. Lasted about three and a half years, give or take a few weeks. Um, and then you have the crucifixion. Um, but basically, if you, if you, when you look at Christ's public ministry, it's basically broken out into um, his inauguration, you know, when he began it. And then he had the early Judean ministry, which was fairly short, not a very long ministry at all. 
and really on the early Judean ministry, he went from Judea up to Galilee, and how did he go? Through Samaria. Through Samaria, all right, which he didn't do in those days. But he went through Samaria, all right, because he had a divine appointment at the well of Sychar. Um, and then he, that, and then you have the greater Galilean ministry, which is a large ministry of Christ. Um, and then you have the latter Judean ministry. You have the Perean ministry, which is the when he was over in the area of Decapolis, and that's when he was on his way down to being crucified in the late Judean ministry when he was basically went to Jerusalem to be crucified. So really what you have is you have Christ going from Judea to Galilee, staying up there a long time, coming down, going back to Galilee, coming down, going back to Galilee, and then making his way down through Perea to Judea for the crucifixion. And he stayed out of Judea basically because it would have been just too confrontational for him to have been down there for a very long period of time. Because every time he went down there, what did he do in the temple? cleaned them out, right? There wasn't one cleansing. You realize there was not one cleansing of the temple? There were actually, I think, three or four mentioned in the Gospels. He didn't do it just once. He did it every every time he went down for Passover, he cleaned them out. You know, and that probably got him irritated. Um, but anyway, another unique thing here, John has no parables. Um, there's eight recorded miracles. Six of them are unique to the Gospel of John. And uh, the, when you look at the span of time, it only covers 20 days of his ministry. So if hit, that's my phone. Um, 20 days. So out of three and a half years, John focuses in on 20 days. And really, most of that is the last week, last seven days. Um, if I say, what are the... What are some characteristic words in John? What would you give me? Well, that's names of Christ. By the way, John is full of... There's 60 separate titles for God in the Gospel of John. More than all the other Gospels. But what are some character th characteristic words that John would... When you think of John? Truth. Verily, verily. Which is the verily, verily I say unto you. Um, belief. Believe, like... You know, believe, love, Father. You really see the fatherhood of God in the Gospel of John. Um, so it's it's a very it's a very rich gospel. It's really going to give us some insight into Christ. Any questions or comments or anything to this point? Where's Itcheria? Uh, what's that? Uh, Itcheria. I'm drawing a complete mental block on Itcheria right now. Um, where's it at? Is it is it to the north of Galilee? North of Galilee? Yeah. Remember, he went up there with the Syrophoenician woman. So he made it. He did make an excursion out of Israel, basically up to that area for a short period of time. Yeah. It, I'm, I just got confused with Idumea. Idumea is to the east. Itcheria, I think, is to the north. But Christ went up there to the Syrophoenician woman um, that he healed up there. So he did go out of that of the you know the area. 
Boy, somebody's really persistent here, aren't they? P-E-R-E-A. Perea. Yeah, that's really the Transjordan. Um, it, it, it'd be modern day, the modern day country of Jordan. Is um, what it is. See if this is an emergency or something. A modern day company of Jordan, country of Jordan. It's my mom. I can ignore her. Huh? No. It's my mom. I can ignore her. Um, yeah, they are. They, a lot of people are really ticked about that. Yeah. Um, So let's open up the Gospel of John and dive in. Yeah. Um, Gospel of John starts out, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, um, that right there is one of the strongest declarations of deity that you'll find in your Bible. In spite of what the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you, who come to your door and want to tell you that, well, you know, it really should say he was a God. In fact, if you pick up the New World Translation of the Greek text, it says he was a God. The word was a God. Okay. Um, the difficulty with that is there's not a Greek scholar on the planet that will tell you that that's a correct translation. Okay, What you basically have here is what's called an anarthrous construction. That's just a fancy word, which means it doesn't have an article. There's no like a or an or whatever. That's what anarthrous is. And when, the, when that construct appears in Greek, what it's doing, it's relating the two words. So what is an equality. So it's, it's basically saying word and God are equal. It's relating them in an equality. All right? That's just how the Greek grammar works. So what this verse is saying is in the beginning was the word. What's the beginning? Yeah. So in the beginning... It says here, was the word. So what does that imply about the word? It was before the beginning. Okay, well what existed before the beginning? God. Now the Jehovah wouldn't say, well, no, not really. I mean, you got to understand it. You know, God the Father created Christ, and then Christ created all of this stuff. All right? I mean, that's what they'll tell you. Um... To, there's a flavor of that in Mormonism and a lot of other things. Um, what this is saying is before the universe existed, all you had was God. Nothing else existed. And if the word was already existent in the beginning, that implies his existence was prior to the beginning. And prior to the beginning, you didn't have such a concept as time. You realize that God created time? It's creation of God. It's part of the universe. 
prior to the creation of the universe, there was no such thing as time. There wasn't any... Our, our brains just like stop and spin and go and backflips on that. But there was no such thing as time prior to time. <laughs> that sounds like a profound statement. Do you think God was always three persons? Yes. Three distinct personalities in perfect union from eternity past. Um, prior to time, they were in perfect unity together. You know, now we can't, you know, our brains can't reach back behind that barrier of the beginning. All right? But when you look out at the universe, God created everything. And by the way, if you don't believe in six-day literal creation, you really need to study your Bible a little bit more because... I believe in six literal days. It didn't take God billions of years to generate an amoeba and work his way up from there. God's spoken into existence. That's baloney. Yeah, that's baloney to say the least. Um, that, that's an accommodation. You don't need to accommodate the scientists. Believe what the Bible says. It, it's, it's right. Um, but God, before it says here, he was in the beginning and he was with God. And he was God. So go figure that out. He was with God, and, and the word there is almost prostantheon, face to face, with God, and he was God. Alright, so Christ is God. We don't understand that, we just say, okay, and we go to the next verse, because you're not going to figure that out. Your brain can't comprehend that. The word in that relationship, what John uses here, in fact, when he uses this concept of word, um, he borrows it not only from Old Testament, but Greek philosophy. And what it really is, it's the rational mind, the, the, the reason. He's, he's trying to picture that, that Christ is, is a intelligence, giving us intelligence and communication. How do we know about God? How do you really know about God? Yeah, but but to really understand God, what happened to happen? And how did He do that? Through Jesus, He sent His Son. I mean, it's really great to read about Him, but now He shows up. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The 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 the, the force, the intelligence, the personality of God was embodied in human form. And John borrows this from the Greek philosophical comment of word being um, reason, logos. wisdom, logos, the logos. All right. There's nothing mystical about it. He's just trying to communicate that this is intelligence. The word, the second, and we know this. the word is Christ because it said the word was made flesh. Well, which member of the Trinity was made flesh? Christ. Second one. Okay. And he was in the beginning with God. So prior to existence, prior to creation, Christ was there. He already existed. Now, now one of the things that, that, um, that, that's argued back and forth as well, prior to existence, how did the members of the Trinity relate? Because we use these terms Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and usually when you think of Father and Son, what do you think of? 
right. We think of it in terms in those terms. Um, that that's our 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 usage of the word. But that's not the way to understand the Trinity. To understand the Trinity, you have three. The, the, the orthodox understanding of the Trinity, and I think the biblical. So you have three distinct personalities, yet they are equal in every other way. All equally share the attributes of deity. So that means they all share aseity, self-existence. They're eternal. They're sovereign. All right? They're om omnipotent, omnipresent. All of them share equally the attributes of deity. So then the question becomes, did you get it? Ah. Uh, make it as noisy as you want, just get rid of that bugger. Um, help me, help me. But there are some who say, well, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son extended into eternity past, which would imply that the Father, not, not, not that the Son proceeded from the Father, but rather that the Father had a, a, um, a um, superior role to that of the Son. All right? And of course, the Holy Spirit drawing the short end was subject to both of them. That's not the way, to, I think, to understand the Trinity. The way to understand a trinity is in eternity past, you had three distinct personalities that were totally equal in all respects. There was not one that was the leader and the others the followers. They were harmonious. There wasn't any need for anyone to lead because they were in perfect unity and harmony together. However, when God, the trinity, decreed creation and by that humanity and by that salvation and by that all that we have in that decree of God each member of the Trinity voluntarily took upon himself a role in redemption and we see this throughout the scripture um, what is the role of the Father? The role of the Father, Father is the one who elects. He shows you an eternity past. Before you existed, He knew you personally, by name, who you were, what you would do, how you would think. God knew you. And God chose you. The Father chose you. He, he elected you. And the Father sent the Son. And what did the Son do? The Son redeems us. The Son gave His life for us. And it's not because He says, okay, if I have to do that, I will. There was a joyous submission to the Father, to the plan. Each member for, functions in a, in a role in redemption. The Father elects, sent the Son. The Son submits Himself to the will of the Father and dies on the cross. And the Holy Spirit submits Himself to the will of the Son and comes and He is the agent of regeneration. He is the one who brings spiritual life. He is the one who brings conviction of sin. The one who enlightens us and helps us understand spiritual truth. And each member, think of it this way, 
your salvation is such that it requires all three members of the Trinity working together to get you to heaven. All three members are involved. And there's a, a joyous um, uh, cooperation. It's not like, you know, they, they had a, a celestial, you know, a, a pre-eternity arm wrestling match and the son lost to the father and had to become the savior business. It wasn't that. Christ took upon himself joyfully that role. It was, it was a joyful thing. And the father is looking forward to the day with joy he can exalt the son above every name that is named. And the spirit joyfully and gladly submits himself to the work of redemption and, and to being the comforter who was sent by the Son to be the comforter. And we don't understand that kind of harmonious working. We don't, we don't understand how that works. Yeah, Paul speaks of that process in Philippians 2 when he talks about Christ not uh, considering equality with God something basically to hold on to, but he willingly submitted himself to being the Savior. Yes. Is a joyful, willing submission to the Father. And why did Christ, why did the drama of redemption require the death of Christ? But why couldn't it have been some other way? You ever think of that? I think of those kinds of things. But why did you? Why did God set up a system whereby a perfect one had to die? Why couldn't He just forgive us? I mean, He could, right? Because He's sovereign; He can do anything He wants. Yeah, but that would be against His nature. He is righteous. He cannot deny that righteousness and the justice that He requires for sin. He cannot deny Himself. But why couldn't He come up with a different way to take care of the sin problem? Well, because He initially took care of it that way. I'm just, I'm just being the devil's advocate here, trying to get you to think. You know. Initially, he required death. But why did he do that? Why couldn't he have required something else? Being sovereign, you could sort of do what you want, you know. But he could have done it some other way, but he didn't. And, and you know, I've, I've often thought about those are the kinds of things I think about. You know, well, why did he do it that way? Why didn't he do it some other way? Um. And I think what it is, is that, is that at, 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 its basic, at its basic component, what is sin? Those are all close, but what is, what is sin? What does it mean to be sinful? You know the answer to this. <laughs> You're close. Well, it's pride. Well, it, pride is a, is a, a, a certain element, but... It's the violation of a relationship. How did, how did Adam violate his relationship with God? By not doing what God told him to do, by not trusting him. Basically, 
And by the way, you do know that humanity was plunged into sin not when Eve ate, but when Adam ate. Okay. Um, when I look at sin, I see sin. What basically sin is, is a violation of relationship. You sin against God when you violate the relationship with God. And we can call that all kinds of things. We can call it disobedience, unrighteousness, rebellion. All of those are certainly components of it. But at its heart, it's the violation of relationship. It's acting in a manner contrary to the nature of God. Well, what is God like? And if you act in any way other than what God is like, that is sin, a violation of a relationship. It's a focus on oneself. Is God focused on what's in it for him? No. Each member of the Trinity is focused on what's in it for the other two. And God wants humanity, in humanity's case, God wants the best for us, right? God doesn't want the worst for us. He wants the best. And, and how is God going to get a bunch of rebellious, self-centered people to stop looking at themselves? What's the greatest expression God could give to show humanity it's not all about me and what I want? The greatest sacrifice he could give. You die for him. That's the greatest sacrifice you can make. You can't make you can't make a greater sacrifice than that. And God is saying, I need to show humanity. I need to give them an example of above everything else that it's not about them. It's not about what they want and they need and them and their focus, but it's about others. What is the greatest expression of other-centered love you can give to die? And Christ died for us. He took our place so that we could be made righteous. Now, I don't want to discount sin. What is sin? Sin is the violation of a relationship with God. How can that relationship be restored? How can you restore a relationship with a holy God? The only way to restore it is to look him in the eye and say, forgive me. It's my fault. Repentance is a necessary component. And God can forgive you on the basis of Christ's sacrifice for us. The justice of God can be satisfied. And Alan was right. God cannot violate his nature. God can do anything, but he can't violate his nature. God cannot make a rock too big, he can't lift it, because that would be stupid, and God's not stupid. Right? God cannot lie. He says he can't do that. God, God cannot lie. It's not within his nature to lie. So God can do anything consistent with his nature. And the need for the Son was to come and offer himself as the sacrifice for sin so that we could be brought face to face with the, the true situation that we're in. Which is what? You can't save yourself. You've got to come God's way. It's the way of the cross. 
And Christ had to die as a bloody sacrifice to shatter our selfishness and to provide the bridge back to God so that we could be made righteous. That's the only way. And I, you know, if there was another way God could have done that, he would have. Which would imply that this was the only way. So, you know, you could debate around in circles, why couldn't he have done it some other way? The bottom line is, he did it the only way he could do it. To satisfy both his justice and his love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion. All of that is done this way. And the son did not do this grudgingly. He did not, was not forced into it. The son willingly and eagerly and with great anticipation looked forward to becoming the Savior so that he could bring us to heaven with him. It was joy. And it says, in the beginning, he was with God. He wasn't created. Christ is not a created being. And one of the things that most false religions do, whether it's Mormonism, um, Hinduism, uh, New Age, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, all of them make Christ a created being. Christ is not a created being. He is self-existent. And that's a great theological term, aseity. What does aseity mean? It means that God's existence is not contingent on anything but Him. Alright? Now that's not like us, right? Our existence is contingent on the existence of air, but the existence of God. If God didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. God is self-existent. And how many self-existent beings are there? One, God. Everything else is created. How many sovereign beings can there be in the universe? One. Because other than that, you're not sovereign. If you've got two sovereign beings, by definition, one of you isn't sovereign. Alright? So God is sovereign. So that means Satan will never thwart the plan of God. Satan will never thwart it. Because Satan is not self-existent. He had a beginning. And by the way, say if you, if you erase existence, what do you have? If you erase the universe, what are you left with? God. So if you erase existence, you erase Satan. Satan as well. Satan is within the boundaries of existence. And what's in the boundaries of existence cannot affect that which is without. Nothing we do in this universe will ever in one way affect that which is without, which is God. He is the eternal one. But this is a great definition of deity. He was there in the beginning. He wasn't a created being. He wasn't a God. He was God. And all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. What role did Christ have in creation? He was, he was the creator. Colossians talks about that, right? Now, how did he create? Let there be. And it was. So he is the, the word, the, 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 the vocal power of God who spoke things into existence. Pardon? Christ spoke it. It says here Christ 
was the one who made everything. And in fact, Colossians says he holds all things together and by him all things consist. And how did God create? God created by saying, let there be. So was Christ the, the word that was spoken? No. Or, okay. he, he is a personification of the creative power of God. Personification. He's not the word. God did not speak Christ. That's not what it is. But God spoke it, in, and it says God spoke things into existence, right? Now, why? Now, why was it? Why was the fact that when God said, "Let there be light," there was, and when you stand out on a dark night and say, "Let there be light," there isn't, because He's God, you're not. Okay? Yeah, He's God, you're not. He has the power to create that, and Christ here is seen as the operative force of God. But you know, don't go too far down that. He is a person. He is He is deity. And here it says, he is the one through whom all things came into existence. You know, in Genesis 1, it says, God said, let us make man. And, and it's kind of like when he speaks to the storm, he tells it, peace, be still, and it stops. Christ himself has the power that his word commands. Mm -hmm. The reality that he's created. Now, you've got to be careful there. And I think this is where, where he's coming from. You got to be careful because you got the word faith boys on TV who say that your words carry power and you need to speak to your wallet, you need to speak to your car, you need to speak to your circumstances, and somehow your voice carries the power of God and yada yada. Look, that's bull that's junk. Don't go down that road. Okay. The reason God's voice means something is because it's coming from God. All right. It's coming from the Creator and and Christ. When he said Lazarus come forth, it's a good thing he qualified that or all of them want to come out of the grave. Because his power carries with it the power of God. And it's not the word that's the power. You understand that? It's not the vocalization. It's not the intonation. It's the power of the one saying it. Okay? I mean, as many times as I've seen that first verse or heard it, until we talked about it or emphasized it tonight, I never realized this has got to be an extreme critical foundational truth that has to be accepted or, or, or there is no salvation or there is no No. You've got to you've got to look at that and say, yep, you know, you believe it or <laughs> you can't make Christ into being something other than God and have a valid salvation. You can't. If you deny his deity, if you intellectually, knowingly, willfully deny the deity of Christ, you cannot be saved. You can't. Because you're denying the very essence of what he is. You, you can't do that. And that's why the deity of Christ, that's why every cult and every oddball thing out there, the, one of the first things they hightail it to is to try and deny the deity of Christ. And when you do that, you come up with a salvation. It's not a salvation. 